Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people that are protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Denise Anderson, the president of the HISAC. Denise, welcome. Thanks, Ed. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. It's so great to have you on the program. I know our listeners are going to be excited to hear about your journey into healthcare. So let's start there. Tell us about how you got into healthcare and particularly how you got into the HISAC. Sure. So it's been a little bit circuitous. I've been, I actually love medicine. I wanted to be a doctor and I ended up not going that path. But in college, I actually applied for one of those job boards that had the index cards up and you try to get them a job while you're in college to get some extra cash. And I applied for to be a file clerk at a medical a clinic hmm. in a clinic that was near the campus. And so I got accepted. I ended up running the place in two years and it was a 21 physician practice. I loved it. But I was actually talked out of being a doctor by a physician who actually was who owned the practice. And so he encouraged me to go get my MBA, which I did. And so I was away from medicine for quite a while. And then I came back in with Health Isaac. So that's been very exciting. I also was an EMT firefighter. So I mm. was working on an ambulance for quite a while as a volunteer. And so I, I did get my kick, my medicine kick from that. And that's how I've gotten to be where I am. Thank you for your service. That's a tough job doing the EMT job. I'm sure you've seen <laughs> it at all. You no, know, it was fun. It was, it was Especially fun. if you had the weekend shift. I'm sure, I'm sure you saw a lot of... So because I was volunteer, we did. We could go in anytime we wanted. Mm -hmm. We had a certain number of hours that we had to work. But I, what I typically would do was go in during the week after work, yeah. spend the night at the station, and then go back to work the next morning. So oh, wow. <laughs> that was my typical. Yeah. And so HISAC, t tell us about the HISAC. Tell us a little bit about the mission and your vision for the organization. Sure. So let me back up a little bit with ISAC in general. So I actually came from the financial services ISAC and I joined them back in 2007. And ISAC was basically formed for, in 1998 around a presidential directive when President Bill Clinton was in office and the concern at the time was Y2K. But he wanted to get critical infrastructure sectors to talk to each other about the cyber concerns and what they could do about it, any kind of mitigation strategies, and also to share, not just amongst the sector, but across the sector, and then with government. So that was the nexus of how the ISAC formed, and financial services was one of the first groups to form an ISAC, and they formed in 1999. So they've been around for quite a time. I was there at FS ISAC. I actually mentored the woman who started the health ISAC, so she started it in 2010. Which was visionary, even though the ISACs are very much all hazards, we're looking at cyber and physical threats that affect critical infrastructure. At the time, cyber and healthcare were not spoken in the same sentence. <laughs> and so she was visionary in getting the, the group started. And then I came in about 2015 of Kim Ralph, who was the chair of the board of the health ISAC, but who I also knew through my time at Epis ISAC because he, he was with a number of financial institutions. But did my arm hard? And asked me to come over and say that they needed me to help get it up and running. So I did. And we never looked back. Yeah. And how many members are you at today? You have an incredible growth over the last 10, 5 yeah, years. Yeah. We have over 800 members now. Wow. So we start when I came on board, it was less than 100. So yeah, that's incredible. we've grown. 
economically. Yeah. In, in all different industry, oh, all different subsectors of the health industry. All different subsectors. Yeah. So we have health IT, we have pharmaceutical manufacturers, medical device manufacturers, of course, healthcare delivery organizations, medical research institutions. So anyone that t- touches the patient is basically a member of ours. Mm-hmm. And wh- where are you taking it over the next couple of years? Where do you think you're going to focus investments or what? where do you think the evolution of the organization will be over the next few years? Yeah, so I think in a number of different areas. So the first and foremost is we're expanding globally. Fiber is not a local problem. It's a global problem. The threat actors don't recognize borders. So to speak, there are no borders on the web. And so this is something we all need to be tackling across the globe. And so we're very focused on building our global community. One thing I've found in my journey with the ISAC is that in the U.S. absolutely got them. And we've done a lot. We've been so successful. I'm also chair of the National Council of ISAC. We have over 20 members of the council and they've all experienced great success over the years. But it's been harder in other countries in the globe or other regions of the globe. For example, Europe has been trying to start up ISAC. Asia has mm-hmm. been trying to start up ISAC. And they've tried, they've tended to have to struggle with that. And our mission is to really try to get people to leverage what already exists. The more we can pare down the community so that you have one place to go versus a whole bunch of different places to go, I think really enhances the sharing and the mitigation when an actual threat does happen, you're able to be more efficient with that. So we are definitely expanding in Europe. We're trying very hard to make organizations aware that we exist and that we have many things that they could take advantage of. We just hired a new director there, so we're very excited about that. He's going to be located in Greece. Oh, and nice. he actually came from a member organization, so he's very familiar with ISAC. And he believes in our mission and what we're doing. He's very passionate, so we're very excited about having him on board. And then, of course, we're going to be growing in Asia as well, and that will be our other focus there. So geographic growth, absolutely. And then, obviously, they're making people aware of our existence and all the tools and services we have to offer, many of them free. And our sector coordinating council, sister organization, many of the free tools that they have there, I know you've been very involved with them. And making people, trying to make the brand awareness, that's there. There's tools for people to use, take advantage of, and that they absolutely belong to this organization or this community. And then the there's talk about the rural health and, and the smaller organizations. And I know we've had conversations about that, but I think with the in it's not just a rural health problem. I so when we're seeing ransomware attacks, it's happening to small clinics. So it is a big problem and mm-hmm. they don't, tend not to have the resources. So we're evaluating a lot of different programs that we can possibly help these organizations with to help them mitigate against the threats or at least be aware of the threats so they can do something about them or know where to right. reach out to if they have a problem. No, that's excellent. So, so it's probably Area. Yeah. Yeah. And that geographic expansion, I'm assuming that's going to impact in a positive way the information efficacy because if a attack is launched overseas or in Europe or wherever, we'll be able to get that information in a much more frictionless way. Absolutely. And we did see that. So I've seen that in financial services. Many times a lot of the attacks started in Australia and then worked their way around the globe. So that definitely is one, but we've seen it here in not just recently mm-hmm. with the Killnet DDoS attack. We They were seen in Europe first. Our European members shared that information back with everyone so that the company, the organizations in the U.S. already knew about them and were able to put mitigations in place to prepare for them. So absolutely, that's great. we have some really great examples where that global sharing is, is key. Yeah, and that's a, obviously a big undertaking. There's 
probably a lot of things that keep you up at night. What are some of the things that you think about on an ongoing basis on behalf of your members? Keeping me up at night. Yeah, probably the one that really does is data manipulation. Mm-hmm. I could be where threat actor, whether and it could be a criminal, but it could also be a terrorist or a nation state could go in and say, imagine if they went in and said, we changed your records, Mr. Hospital, and on blood type. And we went in, we didn't even change all of them. We just changed a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. But what does that do? Your data integrity. What does it happen? What happens when someone with an A negative blood type gets be positive blood. So that that yeah. probably keeps me up at night more than anything because I think it's easy enough to do and it's hard to figure out how to come back. No, I think that's so insightful. I think too, as professionals, where for the most part over the last several decades, we always thought about the data and the confidentiality of that data in terms of the protection of that data, even though integrity as well as availability is also important. Those two areas were really never front and center. It was always about the confidentiality. Now you've got availability with ransomware and that you're right, that last mile, if you will, for the attackers is that integrity, which could be even more impactful than ransomware. Yeah, that's a really great point. You could see the criminal holding ransom too, right? That's right. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, You've manipulated some number of your data sets exactly. <laughs> pay us a ransom we'll let you know where they are yeah no that's a yeah it's ugh. i don't want to give any criminals ideas but <laughs> no i know i'm sure unfortunately they're pretty smart these days <laughs> they are no, yeah and the other thing too that i think we're learning as an industry is what makes them more difficult than ever before is that they are truly organized crime right they are organized criminals at the level of microservices where people are doing very right. discreet functions within that ecosystem of threat. And whereas before it used to be one threat actor would do everything. Now they've actually created this notion of microservices, which is brilliant, but unfortunately making our lives much harder to deal with the attacks. What's been, speaking of attacks, it's been a tough couple of years for folks with the pandemic. What are you most proud of over the past couple of years, personally and professionally and or professionally? I think a lot of organizations were hurt by the pandemic, and I don't want to knock pandemic at all because a lot there were a lot of individuals as well as organizations that were impacted by it. And I don't know that we'll hopefully we'll ever see that again. Um, it definitely was something I've never seen in my lifetime. But there's a couple of things. Uh, let me just back up. Not just I know your question is about what I'm proud about, but I do think that what it's done for healthcare is back in the day, healthcare was at the low totem of the pole. When you came to, in the U.S., we have 16 critical infrastructure sectors, mm-hmm. right? Health was the bottom. COVID changed that. Healthcare be, rose to the top. And people realized what a role health globally can do to impact not just our lives, mm-hmm. but our economy, our ability to save lives because we didn't have supplies, mm-hmm. whether that be food or medicine or whatever the case may be. So it absolutely changed where we are as an industry. And the importance of healthcare in the global ecosystem. Going back to that, though, we one of the things we did, we really ramped it up during COVID as an organization. We were a remote organization as far as staffing was concerned. We do have a talk, but we it didn't impact us. We've been using Zoom before people even knew how to spell Zoom. We've been doing those kinds of things. So we were able to go up and running and run with it. And we were busy, obviously. There were a lot of threats at the time. There were a lot of ransomware attacks. So we were able to hold sessions. We called them happy hour sessions where 
we got members on the phone and they shared things, the, the challenges that they were mm-hmm. facing, the best practices that they were putting in place to help against those challenges and just threats in general and stuff that they were doing. So it was absolutely valuable, I think, that what we were able to deliver during the pandemic. And then personally, the fact that we've been able to grow this organization from pretty much nothing in pretty much less than more more or less, we've really taken it um, to a level that I'm very proud of. Um, We're doing really great things. I would argue that we're pretty much up there with the best of the ISAC, if not the best. And we're doing a lot of great things like targeted alerting. So we're able to go out to our members and let them know we've seen sleep off and here's some things that they could do to mitigate against it. The sharing that we've done has been incredible. When the Petcha, not Petcha, that happened in 2017, the what we did as an organization and what our members did was just amazing. Within 48 hours, they were able to figure out what the real ground truth was as far as the attack was concerned, how it was spreading, and then develop what we called a vaccine to mitigate against it. And we published that up on our website for anybody to to access. That was something really great that you know, shows capabilities of the organization. Yeah, pl- plus all the work you're doing with the healthcare sector, coordinating council to support that, yeah. those efforts is just amazing. Yeah. yeah, we're doing a lot of work there. We don't toot our horn a lot, but we do try to contribute back to community. I know I get to ask that question all the time, especially by government, but what are you doing for the smaller organizations or are you only focused on your members? And that, that's absolutely not true. Our mission is for the sector and the community. And yes, we have members. They help us do that. But we're there to serve the community at large because at the end of the day, every one of us is going to be a patient and we're going to know a patient. Right? It's really important that we make sure that healthcare is able to be delivered and is able to be delivered safely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's stronger together. If we work together and That's we right. leverage our collective wisdom experiences, then we can combat any attack. And obviously we've got some work to do, but it's so much better than it was just even a couple of years ago. Oh, absolutely. So outside of healthcare, what are you most passionate about? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this role or this job? I do love to travel and I am doing a lot of that. <laughs> ah. I would be traveling for sure. I don't sit around too much. I actually, a little unknown tidbit about me probably is that I used to climb mountains yeah. and we're not talking little mountains. I was, I'm like talking about one of the tallest mountains I climbed with Cho'o in Tibet, which was a 26,000 wow. or 8,000 meter peak, sorry, 26,000 feet. So yeah, I did do a lot of that. I'm a lot older and probably a little bit not as agile anymore. But I, don't, I haven't been doing that, but I love the outdoors. I love to travel. So that's probably where I would be. I love to discover new places and love cultures. Yeah, I'd be traveling. What's your favorite place in the world, given all your traveling? Oh, God, that is a hard one. Nepal was awesome. I loved Nepal. It's beautiful, stunningly beautiful. And I like Australia. So I would say Mm. Australia and Nepal are probably my two favorites. Sydney or Perth or? Sydney. I actually love uh, the area north of Sydney. So I I love all of, I guess I could live in Australia if I I had to. (laughs) Have you ever seen a Tasmanian devil? I have not. (laughs) The island. I think I saw one in the zoo, but I've never seen one in a while. How about New Zealand? You've been in New Zealand. I hear New Zealand is beautiful too. I have not. That is oh. on my bucket list. I would love oh. to go to New Zealand. That definitely is on my bucket in list. In HISAC meeting in the future in New Zealand. I, we are. <laughs> At some point, we're going to be there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All right. What would If you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would say that always be open to possibility and always be flexible in what you do because I, I went in 
obviously all of us go into school with a certain idea of where we're going to be in our life. And that's not always where we are or we end up. (laughs) Always be. I had a lot of mentors that kind of helped me along the way. And I would just embrace the mentors that are out there. I would be a mentor because it it just plays such an important role in somebody's Mm -hmm. life. And you could see, I could point to certain times in my life when somebody did something for me that moved me on to the next level. And I hope that I can, I, I know I have done this, but I hope I can be more of a mentor to people in their lives to help them get to certain places. So that's probably what I would say. All right. Hardest lesson in your career. This one I learned very early in life. So I was going to college and I was running a 21 position practice. I think I had 30 something employees hmm. and I was getting a minor in business. And I was reading these textbooks and they had all these great ideas on how to manage people. And so I thought, wow, great. I have this. I can go take it and put it in place in my, in the health, in the clinic. No, that didn't. <laughs> so what, what's in there in the textbooks and all these great ideas yeah. that really don't work in reality. So <laughs> I learned very early in life that you gotta, you can't always rely on what's written in a book. Yeah, it was Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they step in the ring and get punched in the face. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because this is the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. What is the riskiest thing, Denise, you've ever done? I would say climbing 8,000 meter peak. (laughs) It's pretty risky. (laughs) Yeah, looking down over that edge and going, oh my God, if I fall, this is not going to be good. Or if I don't make it down, yeah, that's probably one of the riskiest things I've done. No. I'll tell you another one though. It's one, it was a night I I saw, I told you I was a volunteer firefighter. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I went to six months of fire school and this is as a volunteer, so we would do it at night after work. But uh, we had to lift 35 foot ladders. And I remember that one night I tried to, it, there's nothing that probably scared me more than balancing that ladder and then trying to raise it. And out of my face the first time I did it. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I just out of my league here? But I did it. I got it done. And it ended up being a little bit easier than it, it was. But that was definitely something I don't have a passion for is raising a balancing a 35 foot ladder and raising it. But you're not afraid of heights. So that was, <laughs> once no, it was oh, up no, there, you scaled it. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Any last comments or thoughts you'd like to uh, leave with our listeners? No, I would be remiss if I don't encourage information sharing because I think it's so important and it's something so easy to do and something we fall down on all the time for a variety of reasons, whether we are afraid of liability Mm -hmm. from the lawyers or even our own egos, right? Oh, they won't, what I'm going to share, they probably don't think is that important. Sharing is so important. The cyber criminal nation states are doing it. We need to be doing it. There's no reason that we can't be doing it. And we can be very effective and helpful and make the community that much stronger by doing it. Yeah, that's right. And cyber safety is, in fact, patient safety. And the core of that foundational is is the information. If we're not sharing it, obviously, we can't be stronger together. We thank you for your service and everything you do and everything you bring to the industry. And this is Ed Gaudet signing off from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. If you're on the front line protecting patient safety, Remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information and how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T dot com. 
I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Yeah.